Blog Talk Radio. Live from Washington, D.C., it's quintessential listening. Poetry Online Radio. Now, here's your host, Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the program. Tonight's very special guest is Candace Kelsey. Candace, are you with me? Yes, I am. Great, uh, great to be here. So excited. Well, great. I'm glad that you're here. This is going to be a fun time. Let me ask All you a right. question as we begin this process. What is poetry? Oh, such a great question. Um, you know, uh, I, I have to say poetry really, uh, to me, is just a way of a way of being. It's a way of sort of clarifying, of magnifying, of enriching life. Um, okay. You know, every time I enter into it, it's just this beautifully, like, word-woven musical invention um, that helps us know other people, know other experiences, and know each other better. Mm, mm. Well, then, and you may have already answered this in that beautiful statement, why is it important? What is, why is it important? It's important um, as a human being because it's everything that the evils, I believe, the evils and the vices and all of the pains that history has known as, a, as civilizations, poetry is mm-hmm. the opposite. Poetry is the light that takes us out of that. Poetry is the connection we have with other humans. It's a very base, in some ways, exploration of all of the pathways of connection that we have together as human beings. And so it's the opposite of hate. It's the opposite of a bullet. It's the opposite of war. That's why poetry is important. It's beauty. Wow. Incredibly, <laughs> incredibly <laughs> stated. I really like that. I really like that. <laughs> so as you, as you think about your work, mm-hmm. what are some of the predominant themes of your work? Themes or is that what you said? Themes? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, well, I, it, it changes and it shifts. I mean, I, I've been at this uh, poetry game for about four years now, and I would say there's a definite okay. shift. Um, I, I would say thematically, um, I love connections to um, classical literature, um, specifically the ancient Greeks. Um, I also have uh, themes that I would say are very much anchored in what it means to be a mother, what it means to be a daughter, what it means to be a sister, uh, and kind of the experience of sort of that female experience um, mm. is really alive in my poetry um, because that's how I experience the world, obviously, right? Um, yes. And <clears throat> I think also themes in my poetry are uh, reacting to loss of innocence or violence or I, I, my, my end goal, obvious, always, not obviously, but always, my end goal is to, in a poem, make something that is ugly more beautiful. And mm. maybe that's just by putting it in beautiful words, but we still feel the ugliness. Or maybe that's really shifting something that was ugly into a moment of surprise, a moment of epiphany. So I really want there to be growth in every poem that moves from the ugly to the beautiful. Wow. No, I keep saying wow, but wow. <laughs> okay, I'll take it. Hey, I'll accept all I wow. Am learning, I am learning so much. <laughs> okay. This is great. Please okay. share one of your poems. I will. Okay. So I'm going to read the title poem from my new collection, um, and it's called Still I Am Pushing. Um, and there's a lot of associations with the word pushing, especially for a female, obviously childbirth, and, but also just pushing through pain or a painful memory, um, and, and, and hopefully that's apparent. Still, I am pushing. Uh, snow tubing this winter's day, San Bernardino National Forest. Clouds and pine combine high elevation calico called snowdrift. Hills like white boxer puppies a sun like Sol Invictus at St. Peter's. My son's nose, cold and red, a tiny Japanese flag, perfect drop of blood on a white sheet, mocking compass in the corner of a map, Chinese flag with its gold star like a mother whose four little stars fan out to nurse each nipple a pennant, crimson. 
Red as that call button on the wall by my parents' bed for an emergency, the police. Call button I should have pushed the moment I knew what my mother knew all along. White puppies will be drowned. Because always, even now, I push, I push, and still I am pushing my finger, even as I speed down a hill, snow tubing over patterned continents. White pages, like bruised ice, sudden hematoma of memory. Forty years later, I listen for sirens that never come. The end. Mm. Now, a little backstory to that. Um, yes. For many years, back in the 70s, um, people when people bred dogs right that wasn't you know considered you know it doesn't have the negative connotation it does today um my my parents were involved in breeding boxers and um when you signed a contract through the AKC if the boxer were to give birth to a puppy that was all white that was considered a bad mark on the sire dog so they would be drowned immediately and so this is a you know horrifying memory from my childhood um that came to me as i was snow tubing with my son. Um, again, trying to make something beautiful out of something as ugly as it gets. And I apologize for starting off the, po- the podcast with, you know, killing puppies. No, no problem. No problem. <laughs> no, I mean, it was very profound, very profound, very thought provoking, very thought provoking. You know, yeah. as you think about a poem and the poem that you just had opportunity to recite, mm-hmm. how does a poem begin for you with an idea a form or an image? Oh, that's such a great question. Um, I have to say a lot of times it begins with a phrase. So I'm very word centered. Um, you know, that just words are everything to me. I mean, I, I can't get past, you know, why is this word spelled this way when my, you know, somebody's saying you need to turn left, the light has changed. And I'm thinking about mm-hmm. a word. Um, so mm-hmm. I think phrases really, if I hear an, an amazing, you know, phrase with the sound pattern that I love, that will generate my thoughts to go a certain direction. Um, I would say in this collection, it's less about words and phrases and more about um, images. Yeah, so more about images. So I think the, the imagistic element um, really draws me in, and the phrases seem to be the, you know, the right foot to that left foot, and that starts stepping forward. All right. When you write... Do you sit and think through every word of every stanza, or do you write freely and, again, allow the words to flow? Maybe you just answered that already. No, you know, it, it's weird. I, I, it's almost like um, – sorry. It's, it's almost like um, – I, I have to say, I think it's almost like you're, you're – I know it's cliche, but it's a little bit cliche, but um, the ancient Greeks, you know, thought of the muses, right? The muses, yes. poetry, calliope, et cetera. Um, that's what it feels like. I, I, I almost become outside of myself and it flows, it flows and I can't stop and I'm in a zone. Um, and it's a really frustrating process if it gets interrupted. Um, now when I go back to revise and eventually refine what I've written, that's where I painstakingly go over every word. But initially when I know that a poem is in labor and it's trying to be born, I am just zoned out and totally up to the outside world and focused and in another world. Where do you go to write? That's a great question. So <laughs> ideally, ideally I'm in my bedroom um, with the door shut um, and life is happening outside. Um, but many times I'm driving or I'm at work or I'm grocery shopping and I have to step to the side and start writing on my phone and just take it all down in notes or record it. Um, And then it stays in my brain until I get a chance to sit down and and do it at, you know, at the table or in my bedroom. Mm. Let's take a brief break and we'll be right back.
you're back. My name is Michael Anthony Ingram. I'm here with Candace Kelsey. Candace, please share another piece of your work. Oh, I'm happy to. Thank you. Um, okay, so this poem deals with uh, marriage uh, and some of the, you know, the, 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 the tough thoughts that you, you inevitably face as a married couple. Um, this is called Over Iced Tea at Ashland Hill. And Ashland Hill is a little pub. Over Iced Tea at Ashland Hill. You explained, we are a children's garden, like the one we visit in Pasadena, the Huntington Library. You were right. We are made of fire. Here are the tunnels, soft halos of light, pulse of shadow and heat, flame-colored flax. Earth, silhouettes of magnetic sand across a landscape of pebbles to drop into a symphony. Air braided with citrus and lavender, whimsical as the topiary animals watching us like grandparents. Water for splashing before disappearing into the fog, swept. One might stop to wonder how it can be we don't know better. Rewind, ours is a life, cruel experiment of stretch and yield. Marriage, a Promethean dance on separate continents, a presentation. Mine, a sleeping dog, whimpering itself awake. Wait, do not confuse this field trip. Ice-rattling glass-bottom trip for love. That is another type of garden. The end. Very nice. You know, great writers, great writers have great writing influences. Who are yes. some of yours and what makes them great in your eyes? Oh, yes. Uh, I am, um, you know, admittedly obsessed with Roxanne Gay, uh, if you know mm -hmm. who she is. And in fact, um, my uh, one of my opening epigraphs of my collection is a is a quotation from her from her book Hunger, which I think should be required reading for everyone. Um, and uh, I would say Tracy K. Smith for sure, who was a, a former poet laureate of the United States. Yes. Um, oh, just brilliant. Uh, and then I'm also drawn uh, to Billy Collins, who was a poet laureate. Um, his poetry is a little more playful, uh, takes the mundane and, and really adds a lot of humor to it, but also some, you know, philosophical depth. Um, for, for mechanics, uh, you know, I have to go way back to Gerard Manley Hopkins, um, his sound, use of sound elements and his really acrobatic line, you know, line breaks are r remarkable. Um, in terms of just content and theme, I would say Linda Pestan, um, I would say uh, Langston Hughes for sure. Um, just that 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 sort of um, looking at life's pain and again trying to find the musicality of it. The musicality in pain. Yes. <laughs> I mean, there's a rhythm to it. We know this yes, in, in yes, 2020. <laughs> um, yes. And. And that can be a dirge, and that can also be, you know, a, a celebration. So, mm -hmm. You know, writers, poets, have different methods of writing. Some write on paper and then transmit mm -hmm. to the computer. Mm -hmm. Others write just, they just write. <laughs> what right. is your preferred method of writing? I, I got to say, I, I, I'm a laptop girl. I mean, just the, the speed with which I can write on that and seeing the, the page. I mean, I think that the shape of a poem is so vital. Um, I mean, it, I have to see how it looks on the page. So to handwrite it, also I have terrible handwriting. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, I'm a child of the, of the 80s, and so I was an English major writing papers by hand for, or typewriters. Yes. You know? So I, my I hands remember are tired. You remember? Yes. <laughs> oh, yes, I remember. <laughs> so I, I really do like taking advantage of a nice, smooth keyboard and laptop. Um, it makes me feel, you know, I, you know, pretend I can be, you know, I'm just pretending I'm organized. But, um, but I do like to see the page uh, and the shape take place. Um, line breaks are very important to me. So um, as I'm writing that, you know, the initial line breaks I use that I may go back and change – they really um, almost propel a lot of the poem. So I feel like I, 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 when I see that line break and I see the shape the poem is taking, it almost feeds itself, you know, like um, one of my favorite novels is Moby Dick. And 
one of the scenes in there with the, the tripods on the ship is they'll, they'll take the whale's blubber to feed the fire that then burns the blubber to be oil. So it's almost this cannibalistic thing. And I feel that with my poem, it's less violent, of course, because I'm creating something, but I'm almost using what I've already written on the page to, to sort of feed into what's happening in the rest of the poem, if that makes sense. So I do like to use the laptop. Do you think that you were meant to be a poet? Wow, you don't play, do you? No. <laughs> That's why they pay me the big bucks. Okay. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. I'm going to be honest with you. I do. All right. I do. Tell me why. Tell me why. I have a long way to go, and I'm not anywhere near where I need to be. I have a lot to learn and a lot to work out in this field. But it is. Um, it feels like it's my own skin. It feels like it's breath to me. Um, I can't imagine that uh, the creator of the universe made me to be anything else because I find the most joy when I'm writing, when I'm thinking about what I'm writing, um, when, I, when I talk to people who've read my work. I mean, I, it, it just is breath to me. Um, and it's all I really, I mean, you know, other than spending time with my loved ones, it's really all I want to do. Mm. And I'd love to. Let, I'd love to get better at it, but I, I, at the same time, I don't really pressure myself because yes. I don't want to lose that joy. All right, all right. What was an early experience that potentially led to a poetic <laughs> breakthrough? I'll tell you. Uh, so I was uh, probably in sixth grade, and my brother was starting high school older brother and um, I was the only girl and he had an assignment to write a poem for a class and you know I'm betraying my own ethics here by letting you know that he asked me to write it um, <laughs> and I was just honored to get attention from my older brother so I said hey I could do something maybe that he would think is good so I wrote the poem he got an A and everyone in the family praised me for it and I thought to myself oh something I might be, maybe could be good at um, and that just kind of always stuck in my head of like, okay, that was a weird way to come into it. And then after that, um, I uh, had a couple great teachers, you know, as the story goes, who encouraged me. And, um, you know, uh, just the more I read and the more I got to know um, poets and their writing and their process and their, um, you know, their pedagogy and their philosophy, uh, I just felt more and more at home and inspired. Wow. Share another piece of your work. A witch doctor. Uh, and this uh, is from when I lived in Hong Kong as a child. Um, so this is Hong Kong 1976 witch doctor. My mother took us to find a cure for my brother's footworm and my fear of kindergarten. The witch doctor asked me to stand. I stared out his office window, imagined my fingers in Kowloon Bay my six-year-old body thundering off from Kai Tak Airport. My mother smiled at the old man. His eyes rolled back like mahjong dice, invocation to the spirits, perhaps, while my two brothers sat, comfortable, refuge of twin symmetry. A catch of duck feathers now in her hands, my mother was satisfied. She placed one feather under each of our pillows, finger soft, evening. My brothers dreamt of catching snakes. I made my dolls, Southeast Asian gifts from my father's trips. I made them stand against the wall while I traced their shapes with my feather, wondering if I rolled my eyes, could I be important too? The end. You know, you shared that you lived in Hong Kong. Yes. Poets hail from all over the world. Where do you hail from? Ah, I... I guess I would, the longest I've ever lived somewhere is here in Los Angeles. So I guess I'm from Los Angeles, but I grew up in Cincinnati, Ohio. Oh, so I really okay. called Cincinnati my, yeah, my home as a child. All right. Any influence that Cincinnati gives you in terms of your work? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. So, so that, you know, it's a transformative time from like age seven to 17. I was there. Um, and, you know, adolescence obviously informs so much of, of who we are and, and who we aren't. Right. Um, mm -hmm. So definitely um, the, the river. In fact, I have a poem I'd love to read. 
yes. um, about the Little Miami River. So uh, we would always canoe the Little Miami River in Cincinnati, and it was just a really happy childhood memory of mine. Of my I felt of um, being in a place where my family was intact um, before everybody kind of spread out and had their own family. So it was a really, a really comfortable, positive feeling. Also a place where I went through a lot of trauma, to be quite honest with you. Um, yes. But, but a place of growth, you know? Well, please share your poem about the river. Okay, let's do that. Uh, here we go. This is called... Little Miami River, and um, just to preface, my father is, I believe, 83, and he is he suffers from Alzheimer's, um, and that's a theme that I also kind of work into a lot of my poetry, that concept of um, somebody being physically present but not mentally or emotionally. So this is the Little Miami River. The Little Miami River is my father, filling his shirts and slippers with the applause of pulses, sipping mud bank coffee with the precision of turnpike truckers, dabbling ducks, sliding his rook down the tiled path of black and white, whistling chess drunk, painting our canoe camouflage in the garage, but first wiping its dust with a cheesecloth, tossing over the 80-ounce popcorn bash bags like an angler braving the summer, southwestern Ohio roller coaster of typhoon peaks and whirls only to placate the heart of his little girl before silt slow and damned to age or emptied tumbling into the rapids of dementia's big river mouth while I am distracted by the shimmer and feather of hooks. The end. Hmm. They say that to see the world with complete honesty, one should look to comedians, artists, and poets. Mm, nice. What do you think emerges naturally from your work? Oh, uh, I would say that um, words have power and um, words matter. And the attention, attention to detail is so pivotal. It's an act of love. It's, uh, you know, attention is an act of love. And to give attention to the smallest word, to the smallest punctuation mark, to getting the correct image, the correct connection or comparison, um, that, that those are habits that are virtues and are blessings to the world. Mm. You know, they say that, uh, as you just stated, that words have power. So much is happening in the world today. Yep. What do you see as the role of a poet in modern-day society? Oh, my goodness. Uh, it's everything, honestly. Um, you know, I, I, I don't want to get political, but um, it's personal. So I, I was devastated that there was no poet at the presidential inauguration in mm -hmm. January of 2017. That broke my heart because I feel like the poet – is the voice of the nation. I mean, you, you have to have the poets, the song, the song of the nation, the song of the people, the song of the oppressed, the song that people, you know, the songs are what matter. Um, it's a lyric of the ages. And to not have that is to, ha to lose the soul, really. Um, I, I think that poets are so important today because, look, so important in poetry is connection, is comparison, right? And, mm -hmm. um, and, and what is that really? When, when you're able to understand, say, a simile, or you're under, able to understand an illusion, that's connection. And in a way, you know, that's so important because that's what teaches empathy. That's where you find empathy. And the one yes. thing we need more than anything right now is empathy. I think that poetry is not able to be separated from the pursuit of empathy. You know, I've always believed in terms of empathy that if you can't understand another person's story, attempt mm -hmm. to resonate with the feelings that go along with that story. There's a universal commonality, universal commonality in terms of our feelings. I may 100%. not know your worldview, but 
if you talk about it from uh, from uh, I guess an emotional perspective, mm-hmm. we can we can really we can really empathize with each other. Yes, yeah, important. Absolutely. Yeah, there's not a single person who doesn't feel pain or feel embarrassment or yes. um, hope, right? And if we can connect on that level, I love that. That's beautiful. Mm-hmm. You know, writers write for a myriad of reasons. Some write primarily to speak a message to the audience. Others write because to stay silent is not an option. Why do you write? Oh, wow. Um, I write to... Yeah, I can't stay silent. I, I have to speak. I have to have a voice. Um, I, I come from um, uh, I come from many years of silence and um, of, of not valuing my voice and thinking that it matters. And, you know, I don't want to get too pop psychology here, but um, it really is like my title of my book, Still I Am Pushing, is really is a pushing through of not seeing what I have to say as valuable. And so mm-hmm. um, I... I have to write, I have to speak, I have to, to do that. But also, I think some of my experiences are experiences that um, many young women I want to speak to younger women. I want my experiences to resonate with them, and I want them to feel like they're not alone and that they, too, have a voice that is not only powerful but must be heard. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Please share another piece of your work. You got it. Um, I'm going to read to you a glass jar of volcanic rock from Mount St. Helens. Uh, so I received a present from my uncle in 1980 who lived in Washington State, and he sent me a glass jar of volcanic rock from when Mount St. Helens erupted. Ten years old, we were all figuring it out, fifth graders, little volcanoes, sitting in rows, desks like inhales, recess our only exhale. Ten years old, all we knew of the human heart could fit in that glass jar of volcanic rock from an uncle in Washington. I asked my mother what it meant, the other girls and boys at recess or lunch behind the gate by Fields Ertle Road, Frenching. She swiftly informed me that it involved tongues, not something even married people do. For fear, airtight. My questions screwed shut. I once saw a photo. Gutierrez shot of the Haiten volcano, pride of Chile. Neon veins, lightning, dirty thunder from the caldera, ashen plume eruption. Perfect metaphor to prepare my own daughter, 10 years old. Collision of rock ash, ice, endless bloom of electric illumination. I tell her, unscrew the lid. The end. Mm. Unscrew the lid. <laughs> unscrew the, the lid. lid. I like that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I like my, hu- my husband may not like that, but, you know, this is- <laughs> <laughs> oh, and that you laugh makes me feel good because that means you understood. But, yeah, so I think just that struggling as an adolescent girl, you know, like, what does this all mean, right? What does this all mean? The boys, the girls kissing, da, 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 all this stuff, your sexuality as a human being. Um, yes. Not, not shaming that, right? Not shaming that we are sexual beings and we are coming into our own and that um, there's no reason for a young girl to be ashamed of who they are and questions they have and feelings they might be having. Mm. Poets have several words that come up over and over again in their work. Yes. Words they just can't help but using. <laughs> what are three of your absolute favorite words to use? Oh my goodness. That's your questions are so good. Um, so uh, I definitely use the word feather a lot. I've noticed feather feathers, feathered, every sort of iteration and part of speech mm-hmm. that feather can have. And I think that's because, I mean, feathers are, I have five cats, so I have to admit that I sometimes see feathers in a very morbid way. Um, (laughs) So they they do sort of contain that mortality that I'm always aware of as a poet and thinking about. Um, But feathers also represent flight, 
Um, and, and, you know, as Dickinson says, hope is the thing with feathers. Um, so I do see that as well, but then also feathers are quills that represent writing. Um, and they're soft, but they also have a spine, which is, I think, a, a fitting metaphor for, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of, uh, people. So that, um, I think also another word, uh, that shows up a lot is, um, Dunsinane. I don't know if you know this. This is no. a forest in Shakespeare's Macbeth. I, okay. I tend to always reference Dunsinane. So as um, <clears throat> I don't want to spoil the ending of the play Macbeth, but and I know I shouldn't even say Macbeth. I should say the Scottish play. But um, <laughs> this is a, a key element in the in the plot and the resolution of that play. And Dunsinane is a forest that is predicted by the three witches that it will be moving. Um, and so it has a, a really mystical, uh, magical, foreboding uh, connotation to it, but it's also justice. It also represents justice. And I'm so drawn to justice that um, I think I keep coming back to that image of it's nature, but yet it's man and, and it's justice. Mm. Um, so for some reason, I, may, I, I, I allude to that a lot. Um, a third one. Uh, wow, I think the, I think I use the word uh, inquiry a lot. Inquiry to inquire, or some version of question or inquiry, inquire, ask, wonder. Um, because I mean that is so integral to the human condition, and I think that the speakers in my poem, whether they're me or some other speaker that I've taken on. Um, Really, if we don't have inquiry, if we don't, if we're not curious about why things are happening or why other people are behaving the way they are, um, what do we have? I mean, we have to be curious. We have to be interested. We have to have questions. Um, and without that, really, what, we're just robots. Another poem, please. Oh, you're great. Yes, sir. Yeah, you're great. <laughs> no, you're great. You're great. <laughs> Okay. Um, well, I'll read you one that has Dunsinane in it, I believe. Yeah. Okay. So this is called This from a Rib. The genesis of verse and verses. Adam named the animals. Eve bit back, licked the sour apple, silencing with violence, strange partnership like Dean and Tom could not agree what to call me, apple of their eyes, Mary, or Candace. Hoods of shame slung on me, their marriage nibbled by dementia's teeth, bits of flesh failing, falling short. Clytemestra's nightmare, bearing a snake, twin fangs unravel, pulse a whip of white noise. I turn serpent, both Candace and Mary, neither. From my father's rib, mother's womb, I sleepwalk Dunsinane, 47 years their battle still germinates, a push like seeds in my chest. The end. Hmm. I could really visualize that. It's beautiful. Thank you. That means beautiful, a lot. Beautiful, beautiful. Really beautiful. Tell me about your book. Okay. Still I Am uh, Pushing. Still I Am Pushing. Um, it's my first collection of poems. Um, and... This collection really sort of um, is born of um, years of trying to make sense of um, who, who basically who I am as a mother, as a daughter, as a writer. Um, and again, this is, uh, I would say many of these poems deal with a very broken relationship with my mother um, and also, you know, but, but, searching for healing, searching for understanding, searching for connection and for reconciliation. Um, there's certainly some anger. There's certainly some, you know, moments of confusion, of regret, um, but also tenderness and understanding. Um, many of the poems uh, address um, kind of how facing those things, facing, you know, understanding your relationship as a creation um, as it echoes the creation of language and the use of words and the creation of a poem. So uh, my goal is that the, the language of the poem 
really sort of has a double uh, meaning. It's the meaning of growth as a human being, but also the meaning of, you know, what's the role of language in that process of growing. Um, so I try to do both those things. Um, it also deals with the concept of being, you know, being a wife, being married and what that means. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a lot of struggle and tension as well as joy and meaning um, and just real. It's just real. I mean, these poems are real. They're raw. Um, and they address a lot of things that I think are universally uh, accepted um, as, as part of the human condition. Um, there's also – go ahead. No, 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 no. I'm listening. I'm listening. Please. Okay. Please continue. <laughs> um, also, a few of these poems deal with my, my own journey with um, understanding uh, my worth uh, uh, as somebody who has been assaulted in the past and somebody who has dealt with very toxic uh, messages about my body image. Um, so a lot of that, in, in a sense, these poems are triumphant for me because um, they celebrate my voice and my voice not walking away from pain um, and struggles with my identity in the past, but, but celebrate and dive into it deeply mm-hmm. and get dirty with it and, and messy and muddy. And, and um, again, like I said, try to find hope and beauty and connection and strength in all of it. Mm. Here's a slight variation on that question. Sure. If you had to convince a friend or colleague to read this book, what would you tell them? Mm-hmm. Oh, I would say, um, you should read this book for um, all of the women in your life. Mm. Um, read, the, read this book to understand your mother. Read this book to see the struggle that um, the female gender can um, experience. But beyond that, read this book because it's, it's a story of survival. And it's, uh, these poems address what it means to... Um, battle with yourself and find your worth. So if you've ever felt um, worthless or if you've ever felt voiceless or if you've ever felt um, unsure of what you can add to the world, these poems address that. Um, and they address it from uh, the perspective of a child as well as a, as a, as a grown adult. Um, and ultimately it's uplifting because um, the the product of it is a collection of songs that represent survival. Is your book available on Amazon? Yes, it is. All right. Very nice. Very nice. Please share another piece of your work. And we'll take a break. Okay. Um, Let's go with uh, this one, another one about marriage. This is called At the Cheese and Olive which is also known as C&O. It's an Italian restaurant in Venice here in L.A. At the Cheese and Olive. They sit, corner trattoria, planning their wedding. On the table of butcher block paper, eyes closed, humming Sinatra, she orders the broccolini, watching a dog by the front window. He refills Chianti, eyes closed, arms swaying, feet heavy. She speaks with the waiter, his new apartment, the line of hungry patrons, Crayons draw stick figures, groomsmen, and flower girls. Illegible guest list, blurred by drops of red and oil adorning like a Renaissance chapel. That's Amore, and he asks her to pay the bill. Next door, he gets a seat at the bar, loads up the jukebox. She's left, staring through the glass. Magic of food, warmth, discarded paper table plans, Her waxy blue, red, green hopes swirl into murals. She exits, a row of streetlights. Now solemn ushers notice. Shadows fall like Burnham Wood. The end. And again, Burnham Wood is a reference to Dunsinane, which is Macbeth again. Um, So so this is a poem about two young people planning their wedding on the butcher box block paper of an Italian restaurant. And it doesn't really uh, have a positive vibe, I don't think. <laughs> uh, well, that's okay. Well, I enjoy hearing you read. Thank you. Have you had opportunities to read at different um, programs? Yes, I have. Um, and that is something, actually, I want to do much more of. Um, so, uh, yeah, I've, I've read at a few uh, cafes uh, in here in California and Pasadena, um, 
in uh, actually online. I've done a lot via Zoom these last three months. Um, I'm hoping to get into um, uh, some places uh, here in Los Angeles. I'm just waiting for things to kind of open up. Um, but that that's something I you know, it's, it's, I don't love it as much as the writing, but I do love reading my poetry and I love live poetry readings, just being in the mm-hmm. audience as well as reading. It's just such a tremendous experience. Well, what do you think is the relationship between your speaking voice and your written voice? Is there a relationship? Hmm. Are you I the same mean, person? I mean, I think I am, but there is that level of awareness as you're speaking. And I think I maybe go into my teacher voice, my teacher mode when I'm reading. I try not to. Um, Yeah, I think that my written voice is a little more vulnerable than my speaking voice. My speaking voice is almost saying, uh, you want to come at me? Let's go. <laughs> but in okay. a nice way. Like I'm taking my earrings off. <laughs> no. Um, <laughs> but I do, think, I, I do think my written, my written voice is a little more um, authentic and gentle and a little more um, vulnerable. Mm. Let's take a brief break and we'll be right back. We are back. I am Michael Anthony Ingram. I'm here with Candace Kelsey. If you'd like to speak with Candace, the call-in number is 646-787-1631. You know, as I listen to you, Candace, mm-hmm. and I heard the titles of your poems, they seem very detailed. Ah, okay. What is the role of a title in a poem? What, what does it play? Well, it's a headache, first of all, because sometimes you agonize over that um, and you think, wow, I've written this poem. I love it. Why can't I title it? So there are those times where you have title block and you just can't. It becomes a big headache. Um, And that's where you kind of turn. So I turn to my writer's group or some of my mentors and say, you've got to help me out with this one. Um, A title can, you know, it can it can be that 11th person on a rowboat that sinks thinks the rowboat. I mean, you got to be very careful what you take on as your title. Um, I think it also can, a lot of times I like my title to kind of be the first line where it leads in sort of in Medea race of the poem, like right in the middle of the poem. I like that lead in poem uh, title is very nice. Sometimes Um, it's interesting. I I had, I wrote a poem about um, Meghan Markle uh, a few months back when, you know, the, the Megxit was happening. Um, And you know, my initial title was, was long, uh, and the uh, poets reading the news who published it said, yeah, we, we can't do this long title. Um, so I came up with a shorter title, and it, it just was wonderful, and it was a great note that they had for me, and it made all the difference to me in the poem. So a lot of times it can be that pressure point, you know, that you, you push on it, you release it, and it changes the whole package. Um, Titles cannot be discounted. I mean, they're not just the bow on top of the package at all. I mean, I think they are, you know, if anything, a lot of times the roots, you know, the roots of the tree, they're they're Mm -hmm. really important. And for that reason, they can be, you know, you can just amaze yourself with a genius choice of a title and you're just happy as you can be. And then there's times, like I said, where it just becomes a giant headache and you can't get past it. Or you have to switch it up when, you know, once you realize, oh, this isn't working, this is the real title. Mm. Please share another piece of your work. You got it. Um, Okay, this one's a little bit longer. This is called Daughter's Lament. I am just a blueprint, 
across the drafting table, under your heavy stone palms pressing my corners. Your red pencil, a sundial to cast shadows on my body. This body is paper, not daughter, but design. A shade, turnbell in Prussian blue, dayflower petals, tiny cradles. These lines, my mask, careful measurements, my song. Negatives of the original ultraviolet light, mother and father. I am not easily altered, the scales unreliable, skin at times brittle. Ink soaked once, the excess has washed away. I see what you want to erect, that wrought iron vein appearing through the bay window, plate glass, terrible steel sash, the brick corbels set on the right to hide wooden lintels breathing the tower's cornice. But you must suit your lot, improve aesthetics, birth lean symmetry, reduce this thigh, lengthen, then pull or push to add more here. Elbow the workers to look. My sachet of hips you've taught me. Offer hips. One night I paid for it. Met the morning bruised. Unlike my attackers, gently roll me up. Swaddle me thick rubber band cylinder cough and click when your pencil is dull. Stand in the mirror. Unroll your own face. Take a favorite lipstick and slash. The end. Wow. <laughs> That's the anger. <laughs> <laughs> but what you know, you... anger anger is important. You have to. Oh, I mean, I don't think we can yes, discount it. Okay. No, you... <laughs> <laughs> what makes a poem good? Oh. I know it's very subjective. I know it's very subjective. It is. It is. But but you know, there's that. That's that's you know what individuals are. You know, that's the individuality is subjective. Um. Well, I mean, Emily Dickinson said, I know a poem is good if the, it feels like the top of my head came open. Um, mm. Right? So I, I kind of agree with that. I, after I read a poem and I say, oh, or I have tears in my eyes, or I'm laughing, or I can't stop thinking about it, I know it's good. So if it causes some ripple in my brain... I'm I'm pleased with it, and I'm going to visit it multiple times. I can't read a poem once. I got to go back to it and back to it and back to it. Um, there are poems I've read that I don't like that don't speak to me. It doesn't say anything about their value, but there's just not that connection with me. Um, I guess the feeling there is numb, uh, and and nobody likes that feeling, um, at least if we're honest with ourselves. Um, so uh, it has to. It, it causes some sort of twitch or muscle to ripple and, you know, and um, makes my heart jump a little or makes me see things in a new way. Um, That's what makes a poem good. Also, also, you know, a unique way of describing something. I mean, if it's something I've never thought of before or some strange pulling together of this image with that image, I mean, what, that's just brilliant. I was reading an essay by, um, the essayist uh, uh, Hoagland, last name Hoagland, I can't remember his first name, um, but it's called The Courage of Turtles. And he has this turn of phrase in there um, that turtles um, are able to, when he's watching them, he's anthropomorphizing them, of course, but he says they're able to sort of look the other way like the governor has turned low. Now, I don't know what that means, but that phrase, mm-hmm. as I'm talking about it, has stayed with me. So I'm going to be thinking about that for a long time. What does that description mean? How did he think of that? What is he, you know, so I think if a poem has a turn of phrase that just, um, you know, makes my hair stand up, I, I'm going to yes. love it. Mm. Now, you spoke earlier about a writing group. Do you share your work with a community of writers? I and do. and Sure. Um so I started with a writing group of about five women that I knew from professional um, areas that all write in their mm-hmm. own way. One's a screenwriter, one's a TV writer, one's a, uh, two are bloggers, um, and that I was the only poet. Um, and that was a fantastic group. Um, unfortunately, we were all so social with each other that it became a social group. Uh, okay. And, yeah. And it, it, it's hard to, oh, and one's a novelist. Uh, it, it's hard to be the sole poet in a writing group. Um, as I'm sure they felt as well, being a solo novelist or the sole screenwriter. So um, 
Uh, we disbanded a little bit, but we still support each other, of course, and we're close friends. Um, now I'm in a smaller writing group with three women, um, and uh, honestly, I think they give me more than I give them, but they may mm-hmm. say the opposite. Um, so it, it's been rough these three months because we haven't been able to do much, to be honest with you, but yeah. I credit I credit so much to them because they'll be the first to tell me, you lost me here. Here's where the speed bump is. You've got to fix this. Um, this is brilliant. I love this. Can you, this feels incomplete or this poem is three poems. What are you doing? You have to split this into three poems. Like they'll give mm-hmm. me that kind of very necessary critique um, in a spirit of love, which is wonderful. I'm very blessed. You know, to tell you something, to be honest, I'm afraid of feedback. I'm afraid <laughs> of it. Okay. How do sure. you feel about it? I love it. Give it to me. I mean, I, I, I say that sincerely. Um, now, that's not to say it's not painful and it doesn't hurt and yes. it makes me frustrated sometimes and I'll disagree with it sometimes until I come to my senses. But I want the feedback because I don't trust my own opinion on a lot of things. And that's something okay. I have to work on. But, um, <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm relatively new to this. So I think as much feedback as I can get, the, you know, the better. I, I really do welcome it. So if you got some, give it to me. All right. <laughs> well, share another piece and I will. Okay. <laughs> you got it. Um, okay. I'm going to read. Um, let me give you this one. Hold on. Okay. This is a, this is the final poem in the collection. Um, and it really, it's, it's attempting to chronicle um, my, um, my sort of pushing myself as a writer. It's called Blind Man's Bluff for daughters who learn to see themselves. A canvas wet with oils, a farm scene in Aunt Bessie's makeshift studio. The easel seemed a wooden horse, her, her painting dressed to ride. I was enamored. My mother thought her sister's art silly. How very well I knew this label silly. So I picked up a round-tipped brush and dragged it across the palette through puddles of mud okra, jade, and cerise, like I had been dragged around since birth by my mother. Indignant, I added my own lash of black to her red peonies. Down the hall, nothing had changed. The cousins still giggled, prank-calling, truth or daring. Yet I slid tall now knew from under the heavy tarp of doubt. Suddenly, the air in her studio seemed even sweeter than my father's laughter, sweeter than my desire to become color, living between line and shadow. I began shedding ghosts like stories, while the smiling corners of sunlight and dust became a bone-beveled frame. When the paint dried, I swore I saw the line-sketched face of a girl playing blind man's bluff, moments after removing her blindfold, switching on the light, and finding a pen to push. Mm. The end. Here's my feedback. Yes, sir. (laughs) (laughs) How can you mess with perfection? That was absolutely perfect. Thank you. I will be so. To what address do I send your flowers and chocolates? <laughs> Just continue being you. Continue sharing your work with the world. That's all I need. That's all Thank I need. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. That's nice to hear. <laughs> well, when you think about poetry, how has your idea of what poetry is changed since you began writing? Or maybe it's not. Oh yeah, no, it how totally has. Oh my goodness. Um, yeah, I, I I think that I um, saw it as something um, exterior, something other, something that was foreign and not anything I could ever understand how to do, but I just appreciated it. So in, in some ways, it was just I objectified it. This is a beautiful object that I love and brings me much joy. Um, whereas now that I'm actually writing it, you know, and agonizing it and in the, you know, bowels of it, so to speak, um, I see it as something that is living and alive, not just an object. Mm. So it's not mm-hmm. just an object of beauty in a museum. Now it's something that, you know, has a heartbeat, has a pulse, um, 
can speak back to me, can talk back to me, can upset me um, in, in many ways, like a child, right? Like you see this thing and your idea of it has, it changes as it changes. And as you get to know it better and you understand what it has to offer and how it's its own thing. Um, and also just having to write a poem and let go of it and let it be published when you want to tinker with it and you're not sure, right? Um, mm-hmm. You know, Anne Bradstreet to a, to a, uh, an author to her book is a great example of that poem where she says, okay, take my hideous creature who's not ready to be born yet. Um, so there is that sense of like, wait a minute, this poem is not mine. It's not me. Just like, you know, you realize with your child, that child's not an extension of you. That's, that's, that's their own person, right? So yes, poems yes. become their own and I have to let go of them and see them as their own and be um, in the world and, and read by others who are going to make and make them and see stuff in them that maybe I didn't intend or that I, that is so wildly beautiful that I would never have imagined. Um, so it has become much more personal, much more real, and it's become alive as opposed to being just an object. Wow. Very nice. As you think about poetry again, what is a measure of success as, as a poet? What's a measure of success as a poet? No. Oh. Um, That's uh, that's a tough one. I would say the measure of success is feeling content with the work you're producing. Now, let me explain okay. that. So that the, so inherent in that is that you are producing work. So I, I think that you can still be a poet and not be writing, but that's got to be temporary. I mean, you have to be producing work. You have not. That doesn't necessarily mean publishing, but that means you're writing. Um, even if you're taking a break, but, but, but writing is still at the forefront of your mind and your, and your, and your, you know, way of living. Um, but I think being content with what you're producing, um, if you're feeling uncomfortable or unhappy with everything you're writing, then I'm, then I would say that you, that's not success at all, right? That's a very mm-hmm. uncomfortable tension to have. Um, but if, if you're able to reach through that, push through that and find contentment whether it's published or not that's success mm. I like that I like Thank that you. please please share another piece of your work you got it um, okay I am going to read to you um, how about uh, pipe dream uh, pipe dream My left artery tore spontaneously. It's called a dissection, cardiac arrest, ICU, puzzled cardiologist with me, 39, vegan, fit, and yet. I explained it afflicted for decades now, inflicted upon myself, inpatient, outpatient, bulimic episodes, night terrors to round out the depression. She told me never, never do it again. My heart had had enough. I nodded obediently while to myself I laughed and she scheduled the metal stent, tiny life preserver I float with still. Tonight I stand in front of the bathroom mirror again, again, gray sweats and white tank. I pull my hair back, habit to begin dissecting the anxiety and fear scarfed down just this Christmas. I stare and wonder, will I ever stop purging the identity fed to me? Could I ever climb back in, find my way, clawing, crawling on hands and knees into her womb, fleshy lighthouse, low tide, smuggler's cave, where sound was muffled, and I could not yet hear the word fat. The end. Wow. <sighs> I could listen all night. I could listen all night, but we come to the end of the program. That went really fast, and that was really fun. (laughs) You're a delight. (laughs) One last question, though, before we go. When people hear your work, I'm sure they usually want more. What's next for you as a poet? Oh, that's a good – well, I have – a few collections, a handful of collections out there um, being looked at right now. Hopefully somebody will bite. Um, 
And uh, right now, uh, I'm just reading and listening, and I want to hear other voices than my own right now, just in the climate of this world. Um, So I'm just reading, 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 and listening, listening, listening. Um, But I am generating some ideas. And um, next is just uh, I want to do a lot more speaking events. Um, I want to get a lot more written. um, And I just want to be introduced to more poets. Wow. I want to thank you so, so much for you are spending welcome. time with us. It's been a fa- fascinating hour. I really enjoyed it. And I'd like to invite you to come back again. Because I agree. I, I, <laughs> I want to hear more. Well, yes. to our listening audience, I'd like to say thank you for tuning in. And we'll see you next week. Good night, everybody. You have just listened to the quintessential listening poetry online radio podcast with your host, Dr. Michael Anthony Ingram. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher. And make sure to catch our next episode.